one of the, your lines is because there are reasonable steps they could have taken to avoid ah. being what they are. So if you could summarize how we can differentiate yes. good politicians, uh, Tulsi Gabbard's the great right. example um, that, that I always use, right. good, well-meaning politicians who uh, sort of go astray versus evil politicians. Right. So to start, I don't want to say that people are good if they agree with me and bad if they don't. That's an unreasonably high bar. It's pretty crazy and dogmatic. I want to come up with a standard that would be plausible to a wide range of people, regardless of their political views. And, uh, and so what, you know, what I propose is, uh, is, what I, is really applying what's sometimes called the Spider-Man principle, with great power comes great responsibility. Before a politician actually goes and does something that uh, and does something highly coercive to others, like passing a law saying that you've got to go and join the military whether you like it or not, or says that it's illegal to build skyscrapers or what have you. Do they do? Do they actually try due diligence? Do they investigate what are the actual consequences of this? How bad would it really be if we just didn't pass a law? Like what are what is a reasonable estimate of the benefits that we got out of this? These are the kinds of steps that any decent person would take before they went and did what politics is all about, which is essentially pointing a gun at people's heads and saying, if you don't do this, we'll put you in jail. And if you don't like that, we will kill you. Right. Uh, so it's, you know, the Spider-Man principle with great power comes great responsibility seems super reasonable to me. I don't see that there's anything especially partisan or sectarian about it. It's something that I think almost anyone should agree with before you go and start talking about killing a person or putting them in jail. It, it behooves you to see whether the, whether there's actually a, a lot a large excess of benefits over costs. And then it comes down to hardly any politician does this. Obviously almost no politician puts any severe, severe, serious amount of work into investigating this stuff. The most you can really count on them to do is to go and read some pieces that say what the politician already wanted to hear. The amount, of, the amount of time politicians spend reading things that say that they're wrong or just reading social science journals or even just acquiring familiarity with the evidence, just basic numeracy, right? So you see very little sign that politicians actually do that. And of course not, because they can get power without doing it. Now, if you say, well, I mean, it's their job. Yeah, well, that's the excuse of a whole lot of horrible people in the world. You can say, hey, well, uh, you know, it was my job to go and execute those innocent people. So don't blame me. It was my job to run the slave labor camp, right? No, that is not a good enough excuse. Uh, you know, an excuse that I am happy to entertain is, you know, I went and killed those prisoners because I would have been killed by my superior officer if I hadn't killed them. That's one, right? You know, I think you have to be pretty dogmatic to say, no, you should have just let him kill you. At least to say, all right, I can, that's a pretty good, a pretty good point, if true. But then the question is, is it really true that you would have been killed? But if you had disobeyed the order, maybe you just would have been yelled at. Maybe you just would have been teased. Right. There's a book from about 25 years ago now, Hitler's Willing Executioners, and basically looked at the question, when Germans that were working in death camps and other such parts of the Nazi empire disobeyed orders to go and murder civilians, what happened to them? And the general answer was nothing. They were not shot. They were not themselves mm -hmm. put in slave labor camps. The worst that happened was they got a stern talking to like, you, know, you realize that if all Germans were to have this disobedient attitude, it could be a, a serious harm in our war effort. So now will you go and murder those children? No, you really disappoint me. You might have to be transferred over to another part of the war effort now. Okay, well, this is going to look really embarrassing for us. But that is pretty much what was going on.
And this is where I will say, if your excuse is you went and murdered innocent people because you didn't want your superior officer to talk to you like that, tough luck. Like that is, it, that is not a reasonable excuse that someone was going to go and look down on you for failing to murder innocent people. So <laughs> they're um, like the worst public you know, like servant. You, you said, you, you know, you do it. Oh, I will kill you. All right. That's where it's like, gee, like you can really, you can really understand why a person might do a terrible thing in that situation and say, at least it's complicated as to how much you want to blame them. But if it's just, you know, you are a real letdown, Hans. That's where it's like, um, well, okay, uh, well, I'd rather let you down than go and murder people. So no, nine, nine, nine. Yeah, uh, you would think that they actually have some allegiance after they're always saying, I served and I serve the public and I'm here to serve you. You'd think they'd have some allegiance to us. Yeah. But every time I try bossing them around, I'm, a, yeah. I'm an evil terrorist. They boss me around. That, next time, I keep, I keep forgetting, next time I talk to an officer, I'm going to say, I was hired uh, to be a drug dealer. I was a hired assassin, so I was just following orders. I, yeah, I, yeah. I need I would, to I ask. I wouldn't them. try it, Keith. It's uh, just put it on the blog. <laughs> Do a podcast. <laughs> yeah, that would. I know philosopher Michael Humer once tried to philosophize his way out of a ticket that he got. I think for running a red light in the middle of the night, and he did get the guy to engage the argument a bit. So, you know, and the point of well, no one was around, so what difference does it make if I run the red light? I checked to make sure no one was coming you were just hiding there with your lights off and the guy's like, well, you know, if you have people can break the law when it's totally, there's no reason at all to keep it, then they might start breaking really good laws. And it's like, seems unlikely. Right. But he wasn't able to talk his way out of the ticket. And the cop said, Oh God, did you write paradox lost? I'm out of here. Goodbye. You yeah. win. <laughs> yeah. All right. At least like he didn't get arrested or anything. I would have, if I was in the car, I'd be like, shut up, shut up. Oh, no, that's scary. Um, I, 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 I on the other hand, have talked my way out of multiple tickets. <laughs> How would you do? It? You know, always involving. There's a bunch of kids in my car, and oh, I just, sort of, yeah. you know, I, I don't, I don't argue. I look pity, look pitiful, <laughs> and uh, and a, a super apologetic, super obsequious. Like it's that's got like a two third success rate for me, but it does require to having kids in the car. I was wondering what makes people care about some death and not others. So when it comes to the My Lai Massacre, COVID deaths, Waco, mm -hmm. Eric Garner, bombing of Dresden, King Leopold, Ashley Babbitt, uh, everyone you could find someone saying these deaths are tragic, but very few, with the exception of libertarians, will mm -hmm. say all of those involved initiating violence against peaceful people mm -hmm. and therefore are immoral. Mm -hmm. You have a chapter. Tell me the difference between My Lai Massacre and Hiroshima. What are your thoughts on that in this book? Right. So, of course, to back up, it does require that people have heard of Miley. Uh, this was a, a war crime committed by American soldiers in a Vietnamese village where the exact, de the exact details of the chain of command are unclear, but what is definitely known is that the commander on site ordered his soldiers just to kill everyone in the village. And then the, the reason we know about it is there was one guy who disobeyed orders and went and rescued some of the people in his helicopter and flew away. And I think he actually risked his own life. I think he actually did point his uh, guns back at some American soldiers who said to hand over all of the civilians in the village, and he refused and rescued them. Um, so anyway. Um, Was that Hugh Thompson? Um, you like I, I would I, I honestly I don't remember the names of the people involved. Just I'm sorry to interrupt. Just the heroism and villainy, right? But anyway. Um, 
Now, Hiroshima, I hope most people who are watching this have heard of that. So the U.S. dropped uh, atomic bomb on Hiroshima, first time that an atomic bomb was used on human beings. Second time was Nagasaki, of course. Right now, most people are strongly convinced that Hiroshima was fine and that Miley was terrible. Although at the time, it's worth pointing out that a lot of people were claiming that the Americans who murdered all the people were heroes and that the guy who rescued some people was a traitor. Uh, eventually, the facts came out and they were so horrifying and so blatant that it does that's like, like you know, the, uh, the guy, the rescuer did not go to jail, at least. And the perpetrator got, I think, like some years of house arrest, right, rather than just being summarily shot as a war criminal, which would have been the sensible thing. But anyway, uh, the point of that essay is I just go through. So what are some what are some reasons why people think that Hiroshima was okay? Of course, it starts off with saying, well, we were just going and bombing enemy soldiers, and that's totally untrue, and you can check that pretty easily. And then the next one is, well, look, we wanted to kill some soldiers, and unfortunately, there were a whole lot of civilians nearby. So we didn't have any convenient way of going and just, just killing soldiers, so we killed them all, right? But then you go to Miley, and here's the problem. We've got some guerrilla infiltration in the village. So yeah, if you want to make sure that you get the guerrillas, then you better just kill everyone in the village. And yeah, this is one where it's like, no, you can't just murder everyone in the village just because there's a few unknown guerrillas there. And you say, well, but there's collaboration between the civilians and the guerrillas. Well, between some of them, not all of them. The kids aren't involved in the collaboration, so you're going to go and kill all the kids too. That's okay, right? Uh, so basically just try to walk through different stories that people have given about the differences between the two. I mean, another one is just, well, Hiroshima ended the war, Miley didn't. It's like, yeah, well, but what if you knew that doing a thousand Miley's would end the war? Then would it be okay to go and do that kind of thing, right? And again, this is one, well, guess not. But well, in that case, we're back to wondering what's different about Hiroshima. You have mm -hmm. a chapter called the Common Sense Case for Pacifism. Mm -hmm. What is pacifism? Please give us the bullet points on why mm -hmm. you are a pacifist. Right. Well, so like sexism, you can go to the dictionary and there are a couple of different definitions. But in the case of pacifism, I'll say that there's not one definition that is overwhelming. For feminism, I think that it is actually overwhelming that almost everyone who, talk, who talks about it, they mean the, the view that women are treated less fairly in our society than men. In the case of pacifism, there's what you call absolute pacifism, saying that you should never use violence for any reason. But another one in the dictionary is just opposition to war, right? I am not a pacifist in the first sense. So I am fully in favor of actual self-defense. I, in principle, I think the death penalty is great. It's just a practical matter about whether or not you can actually make it work in a given system. Right. But, you know, like if I could have executed Hitler at the end of World War II, then, yeah, absolutely. No question. Where is he? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm good to go. All right. Uh, but uh, pacifism in the sense of opposition to war. This is where I do say that I'm a pacifist. I mean, I got thinking about this because there were so many libertarians who say they're isolationists. And then I was thinking, well, that doesn't really fit what I think. And the pacifism is really much more accurate because isolationist indicates, well, I'm willing to go and fight in, in the case of national self-defense, for example, or, uh, or in the case of a civil war, then may, that would not be ruled out by isolationism. And so yeah, here's what I say about pacifism. So look, I have an actual argument. So this is not the kind of thing where I say I feel something and then some people say I feel differently. This is one where I say, look, I've got premises. The premises lead logically to a conclusion. And if you disagree with the conclusion, you must tell me which premise you disagree with. It's that kind of an argument, right? Which is, of course, the kind of argument that I like. It's the kind that I believe in. It's what I dedicate my life to. 
All right. And again, of course, a good argument is one where those premises are hard to just throw away. Right. Ones where you say, hmm, these premises are not just something that only Brian believes. They're something that almost everybody believes. And they seem to lead to a conclusion. I don't believe whatever am I, am I to do. So the premises of the argument are first as follows. Um, the let's say let's what's the least what's the simplest way of putting it? All right. So you know, premise one uh, the short run costs of war are really bad. All right, the short run costs of war are really, really bad. You know, a lot of people die, destruction, right? So you've got that. And all right, so you've got that. Right, you know, secondly, uh, long run benefits are uncertain. It is very common for someone to fight a war claiming it's going to lead to great good. And guess what? It doesn't. World War I was the war to end all wars. It really was. All right, and that was wrong. Right. Uh, or more recently, let's take a look at how well Iraq and Afghanistan have gone. We were promised that they would be turned into civilized Western democracies, more or less, and that didn't happen. All right. So the long run now, this does not mean that they never happen. The Korean War did actually lead to South Korea being a way better country than North Korea. And the absence uh, probably a whole thing would have been North Korea. The point is just that there's high uncertainty. Then the next premise is that before you go and murder or negligently kill innocent people, you should have high confidence that there will be a large excess of benefits over costs. Right, so that is key. That comes down to a thought experiment that has been done many times, sometimes called the forced organ, organ donation hypothetical, which just says, look, all right, you're a doctor. You do organ transplants to save lives. You got five patients. Each patient needs a different organ to save their life. One needs a liver, one needs lungs, one needs a heart, and so on. Perfectly healthy guy walks by. He has no friends, no family. No one will ever miss him. Would it be all right for you to murder him and harvest his organs to save your five patients? Almost everyone says no. If you raise the numbers up a lot enough, then many people change their minds. But five isn't enough. So he said, all right, well, this shows that if we're talking about murdering innocent people, we've got to have at least a five to one benefit cost ratio. Right. And then the final point is people say, well, I mean, like we're not killing innocent people. Modern warfare always involves the murdering or negligent killing of innocents because the weapons are just too indiscriminate to not do it. Right. So anyway, snap all these premises together. And it seems like there's a very strong presumption opposed to war. Really, in order to have a justified war, you need to be able to reasonably say this is war where, where we have such strong knowledge of its future consequences that we know with, with a lot of confidence that there will be over five times benefits. Uh, the, the benefits will be over five times the costs, right? Now, this is a claim you can always make, but then it's like, all right, well, let's just go and look at your record of prediction. How good is your record of prediction of this kind of thing? Uh, we know from the work of political psychologist Philip Tetlock that even experts level of prediction of this kind is extremely poor. And so it is just not reasonable to think that, that, that people have this kind of knowledge. Yeah. And even in Obama's book, Promised Land, he still brags about Libya and then minimizes the very end of it. Yeah. Even the war for Polish independence declared uh, September 3rd of 1939 ended with uh, giving Poland to the Soviets. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, we just need so much humility in, uh, in this arena. Yeah. I'm so thankful for uh, your time. I have two more quick uh, questions All right, sure for thing. you. Sure thing, Keith. Happy to do it. You have a uh, great a uh, great chapter in here titled Monopolizing Petty Lies. How can you support free speech when so many people are unreliable and dishonest? Hmm. 
Right. So just to back up, the point of the essay Monopolize the Pretty Lies is this. What is the main point of censorship in a dictatorship? If you are a big Orwell fan like me, your knee-jerk reaction is the point is to suppress the truth. Sorry, that is a thing that dictators do. But if you pay attention to what happens when you relax censorship, the main thing isn't that a lot of truths come out. The main thing is that some competing politicians show up and they start spinning their own ridiculous lies. So right now in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, only the government gets to say we're ordained by God and we are great and this and we are the greatest rulers forever. We're wonderful. Now, if they were relaxed the censorship, what would happen? Would it be a bunch of rationalists come along and start going and saying, well, let's go and consider some criticism of the Quran and like what that implies for <laughs> what that implies for Sharia law. Much more likely there would be some fanatics who come along and say, no, we are ordained by God and he has ordained us to take over this country and kill you in, and kill you horrible reprobates who present yourself as friends of Islam. That's what God really wants. And in fact, you probably see 20 different guys claiming to have a pipeline to God, right? So you realize a lot of what censorship is about is about crushing other liars. You want to be the only people that are able to say where this is the greatest country in the world because it's ruled by me because I'm so great. You don't want anyone else to be able to say that kind of stuff. All right. Now, uh, so this is my story about the point, the main point of censorship. It is just that only the people in power can go and weaponize this ridiculous rhetoric. Uh, now, given this, how can I defend free speech? So I think I got another piece where, where it basically amounts to one cheer for free speech. And I said, like, the, like, you can't really say, you can't say that free speech leads to truth. Right? It's just not correct. You know, like, you know, like, obviously, if free speech led to truth, then there would just be one religious view on the planet by now. And guess what? There's not. There'd be one political view on the planet. There isn't. So on. Right? If free speech led to truth, then basically as soon as you open things up, then the most evidence-based views would suddenly become popular. And again, anyone who is familiar with evidence knows that is not true. All right. So what is the best defense of free speech? And the best defense is just that free speech allows some people to figure out the truth. It prevents the suppression of the minority of people that want to actually figure things out. That's what we've got. We can't say that it leads to truth. We can't say that in the end, everything works out. What we can say is that free speech is what allows the narrow segment of society that cares about truth to keep doing what they're doing. I had a discussion with a uh, woman the other day, and she was uh, very upset that Trump has still not been arrested after uh, having documents he should not have had in Mar-a-Lago. She's also very upset about January 6th and the Ukrainian collusion phone call. And I mentioned to her, I said, you know, if you really want to knock out punch against Trump, I, I absolutely have it for you. And I, uh, I got her, I actually uh, dedicated this blog post to her, where uh, Trump actually uh, has killed thousands of civilians across Iraq, Syria, 86 civilians in one month alone in Yemen. And I go, so all of this has to be something like 100,000 times worse than any call he made to Ukraine <laughs> about, you know, Hunter Biden's laptop. And she could not have been less interested in mm -hmm. what I was saying. Mm -hmm. And then I tried it with another person. And then I said, hey, if you guys really want to get Obama, the anti-war president, you know, that he is like helping out the Saudis and gave them the green light for a war in Yemen and all this other stuff. Uh, why is it that people don't care about the major things in politics, but care about the petty things? Because it's often easier to be emotional about a petty thing than about a major thing, especially if the major thing is numerical and the petty thing is personal. 
right? That's, you know, this is a very general feature of human psychology. The, Stalin allegedly said one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is, deaths is a statistic. If he did say it, I don't think we got any real evidence that he did. It's one of the most insightful things that Stalin said, right? You know, so this is basic human psychology. You know, if you're just watching a movie, if you want to get people on the edge of their seats, do you go and show a city getting bombed and a million people dying from a mile up? No, you go and move the camera into the crib and show the baby burning alive. That's the kind of thing that you show to get people emotionally affected. So that's one big part of it. In politics, another part, of course, is people just care much less about foreigners than about than about people in their own country. If you had said that Trump had had killed thousands of innocent Americans, that would have been I think I think they would have gotten a much stronger reaction. So there's that. And there, you know, there's also just a general view. Well, look, you know, like their leader, it's war, leader, it's wars, stuff's going to happen. So you can't hold that against people. And I think honestly, on something like that, people realize, well, you're kind of leading me into a trap because if I go and condemn Trump for going and killing some innocent civilians in Yemen, then you could also say that Obama is a monster because he went and killed a bunch of innocent people. And, uh, I, but I love Obama. He's my guy. So I'm not going to let you trick me by taking me down this, this path. I'm going to focus on something that only can be said about the guy that I dislike and can't be said about the guy that I like. Right. You know, I mean, on top of this, of course, people are just very able to have a big double standard. This is where Orwell is totally spot on, as it usually is, political double think. People are very capable of holding contradictory views at the same time for the issues that they're emotionally affected, emotionally invested in, like politics, like religion. The books are How Evil Are Politicians? Essays on Demagoguery. Also, Don't Be a Feminist, Dr. Brian Kaplan, thank you so much for Very much. And yes, the books can both be purchased on Amazon for the still inflation unadjusted price of 12 bucks for the paperback and $9.99 for the ebook. Uh, so I hope that you check them out. Links will be in the description. Take care. Thank you.